Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? My guest today is described as an obscenely talented man. Matthew Todd is a multi-award winning writer, playwright, broadcaster and sometime performer. He was also the editor of the UK's best-selling gay magazine Attitude for eight years. During that time, Matthew interviewed countless celebrities, idols and icons, including Madonna, Elton John and Lady Gaga. For his very last issue in 2016, he made history. His Royal Highness Prince William was photographed for the front cover of Attitude, making his first appearance in the gay press and issuing the first royal statement against homo, bi and transphobic bullying. This was statement publishing. The art of the Attitude front cover was glossy, distinct and stylish. It featured photographs of both gay and straight celebrities. Everyone was welcome. But what lay behind those front covers was an even bigger and personal story, one that has informed, some would say, life-saving work today. Matthew's insights into gay culture and his own lived experience was telling him a very different story. Not everyone did, in fact, feel welcome. He was witnessing a disproportionate number of gay people suffering from anxiety, depression, addiction, suicidal thoughts and behaviour. Despite big life statements, perfect bodies, out and proud gay attitudes, there was a dysfunction which Matthew identified as the straitjacket of shame. In his book, Straitjacket, How to Be Gay and Happy, he examines the socio-political history that lies behind gay culture and how secrecy, being othered, criminalised, bullied, and relentlessly judged became defining characteristics of that straitjacket. Striving for perfectionism can't compensate for shame, and Matthew's book is described as a revolutionary call by responding to a mental health crisis. Straitjacket is reviewed by Sir Elton John as an essential read for every gay person on the planet. As part of LGBT History Month, we're lucky enough to have Matthew as our guest today. Hello, Matthew, and welcome to Cannot Save Us. Hello, thanks for having me. Nice to be with you. It's fantastic, and, and I do appreciate you making the time. So, Matthew, what really intrigued me, having read your book, and of course, it's hugely successful, you were, in fact, often looking for reasons not to write it. And I wondered if that was the personal exposure you were putting yourself through, or was it fears about sensationalism overtaking the purpose of the book, perhaps? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, <clears throat> it's quite a while since I wrote it. It came out in 2016, and I had a few years after uh, it came out, you know, when the paperback came out, talking about it all the time. And actually, this is the first time I've 
done an interview about it for for quite a while. So when you were reading out all that stuff, I was thinking, oh, I forgot, I forgot <laughs> to do that. Forgot about that. Um, and, I, and I have said that before that I was looking for reasons to do it. I, I, I think maybe it's partly because it, as I talk about in the book, it kind of goes against the grain of what kind of gay culture is. Uh, you know, everyone knows that gay culture is, is, you know, like about pride and, you know, it's like flag waving and it's all kind of celebratory and stuff. And this kind of, you know, I assert in the book that, as you said, you know, that's not the whole story that underneath that there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of, there's a drug issue for, you know, not everybody I say in the book over and over and over and over and over again, majority of LGBT people, are, you know, living happy, healthy lives. Majority are not, you know, don't have problems with drink or drugs or whatever it may be. But there is a disproportionate problem, you know, with body image issues and suicide ideation and drugs and uh, eating disorders and all these kind of things. So it was kind of a difficult thing and a painful thing, you know, to go against the grain. Partly that's what Attitude did. It kind of evolved to be this kind of gay magazine, which was slightly different, which didn't really rely on advertising from you know, gay bars and clubs and the gay world, quote unquote, maybe like some of the other gay magazines did. So we were able to kind of speak a bit more freely and got a net, you know, Astrid was known for, you know, for for pushing boundaries a little bit and, and talking about issues that maybe some of the other gay press didn't. So it's partly that, but I guess, yeah, also just the fact that it was just very painful to, to, talk about all of this stuff and uh, you know we were saying just earlier when we jumped on the on the line you know when you're working as an editor of a gay magazine it's a very strange thing because you're dealing with you know interviewing celebrities and you know exciting people people that you grew up loving and then you're pushing a kind of political agenda and interviewing prime ministers and mps and things like that but also you're dealing with some of these really difficult issues so you're constantly being written to by readers saying you know I, I've got a problem with drugs or you know, quite a lot of prison, people in prison would would write saying I'm in prison for this reason or that reason and please can you help me please can you send me a copy of the, copy of the magazine or you know parents getting in touch saying their child had taken it taken their own life so it's very intense as well so it was very much about kind of wading into that really deep painful stuff which was really hard and also that no one had really spoken in depth about these problems in the UK. There's a book called The Velvet Rage, which is an American book, which no one had actually heard of when I became editor of Attitude. I hadn't heard about it, but when I went into recovery for some of my own issues, a therapist gave a copy to me and I wrote about it in Attitude in 2010 and Velvet Rage, I said people should read it and everybody did. And now it's kind of considered to be like a classic book and it's in all kind of bookshops and stuff. So it was just difficult and a bit scary and wondering whether people would push, you know, the readers would push back because gay culture, like I said, is, you know, so focused on, you know, the celebratory aspects that whether or not people would want to hear that. So it was, it felt a little bit scary at the time. Yeah, it, it sounds like a great act of courage to me, courage and compassion. Um, you've taken a, you took a very active role and, Really, you were insisting, I guess, on getting to the brutal truth. So it wasn't some sort of, you know, tribal betrayal, you know, 
taking off the gloss of how gay culture is normally perceived. It was the importance, the fundamental importance of taking an honest look at what was perhaps creating um, a mental health crisis for so many gay people that you were either meeting or hearing about. Yeah, it's funny because I remember years ago, when I was deputy editor of Attitude, we did a feature on the high levels of suicide amongst gay and bisexual men. And I don't think we were aware of any research at that time, or maybe we just didn't come across it or know how to access it. But I remember thinking, you know, at that time, and that wasn't led by me, that, I mean, it was all of us it was under the previous editor, Adam Matera. But I remember us having a conversation then, oh, is, you know, is it okay? Is it still very negative? And there were a couple of uh, like con- contributors, like one of the senior contributors who, criticized us for doing that saying oh it's such a negative story but it was an important thing to, to talk about it is an important thing to talk about because it is true we know now for sure that there are high high levels in in uh, amongst gay men and the lgbtq wider community and yeah it is it is painful but it's funny because um i remember some, uh, some uh, quite a famous uh, broadcaster who i'd sent the book to before it came out you said, oh, I, I think the book's fantastic, but I think you might get attacked in the street for saying some of these things. And, and none of that's happened. None of that's happened. All the, the reaction has been completely positive. And now it's not a controversial thing. Eight years down the line, it's not a controversial thing to talk about this now. It's, it's, you know, it's widely accepted amongst the LGBT community that there are these problems and, and we understand, you know, it's, it's, it's an obvious thing really, but if you grow up, you know, being told, you know, sometimes explicitly by people, be it your parents or teachers or whatever, that you're not good enough, but also receiving this message from society that you're not good enough or not acceptable or not legal, you know, in some cases around the world still certainly was that way when I was growing up, um, that, you know, you're likely to not have very good self-esteem and some of the issues that, that come from that. So, yeah, we're in a different place now, I think. Yeah, it's very interesting because um, undoubtedly um, we can say there's a different place in terms of uh, progress that's been made in some ways. But at the same time, your book is so relevant still. It's it's still such an important reference point. And how progressive do you think things have been since you wrote this book in terms of um, mental health awareness, um, specifically within the gay community? Well, I think we're definitely talking about it now. And I think that there's a, there's a general acceptance. You know, I often hear from people that get in contact with me still. In fact, this, this week, actually, a couple of people have got in contact saying, my therapist gave me a copy of your book and another person said, I read your book and I recommend it to everybody. And I just noticed it, not, I don't Google myself very, <laughs> very often, but I was, I was just looking at the books on Amazon the other day and, um, and I just out of interest just checked to see where, where Straightjacket was on the, uh, Amazon rankings. And I noticed that it was number three, uh, on the most gifted, uh, list in some LGBT category. That's fantastic. Yeah, which is interesting. That I hear that a lot, that people buy it for their friends. So I definitely think we're talking about it. That said, I still meet people who've not heard about it, and I still think I still think it's a sensitive thing. I do think um, I think it's still difficult for people in quote-unquote minority groups, and we're all in – most of us are in my, some, some kind of minority group in one way or another. I still think it's difficult to, to, to step back because the, the whole – the narrative so much now is – 
pointing at other people. You did this to me. You did this to me. You did this to me. Whereas the book says, yeah, these things were done to us, but we're the ones left with the scars if we have them. And like I say, not everybody does. But if you have those scars, you can't wait for somebody else to fix you. You have to, in some respects, you know, take responsibility for fixing yourself. You have to make the call. You have to ask for help. You have to put in action and, to, you know, go into recovery or stop using drugs or stop drinking or whatever it may be. So, some, so that's not always a, an easy thing for anyone, you know, to, to hear. And, and minority groups, I think, are sensitive to those conversations. But yeah, we've definitely, we've definitely uh, made some progression, I think. And it's interesting when you talk about scars, because of course, scarring can start at an extremely young age. And you even position yourself in the book as um, being aware at only the age of five, um, I'll quote you, of overwhelming fragility and fear and understanding that I wasn't like other boys. Mm. Yeah, that phrase has become a cliche now that I'm not like other boys because you just hear it so much from from you know gay and bisexual uh, men and and the same with lesbian women talking when they were growing up not feeling like other girls. I, I think yeah, just that awareness and it's really interesting hearing the conversation as well. You know, the, the bullying of trans people that happens at the moment in the media and this kind of constant narrative of you can't possibly know. And I totally understand. You know. Uh, if you're not LGBT coming to this issue thinking, well, how on earth can anyone ever know anything like that when they're five or six? And I certainly didn't know I was gay when I was five, but I absolutely knew I was different. And I absolutely knew that I was being treated differently by other people. And I absolutely knew that it didn't feel like life was safe for me. Uh, You know, and then I realized I was gay at about 10 or 11 and I knew what, what that meant. So um, these are really complicated, difficult discussions to uh, to have. But it's also shocking to read, and it may have been around the age of 10 or 11, actually, when you were at school, that you actually had a teacher that would really make inappropriate homophobic remarks directly to you. Who was that? I can't remember. <laughs> I don't think secondary school. So, well, I mean, yeah. at primary school, you, you just, I mean, that, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, you just hear, you know, negativity about gay people all the time. It wasn't, it was just this casual thing. And I think I'm aware a little bit of some parents kind of, if I think back at it now, the way I felt and the way I was interacting with people, that maybe some parents were picking up on the fact that I was camp or gay or whatever you want to call it but in secondary school yeah I mean I, there were there were various teachers there was one in particular that we, I think you know was picking up on maybe my gender non-conforming ways or whatever being effeminate whatever you want to call it who just was really aggressive to me and I heard teachers uh, using yeah derogatory gay words um, it's just it just at that time there just was no awareness that yeah well there are going to be gay you know certainly in secondary school when people are 11 12 13 14 15 16 of course there's there's going to be people there who are who are realizing that they are gay and lgbtq and so on and funnily enough actually i've been back to my 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 senior school several times now i think last year i went back and gave a talk to the lgbt group that they have uh for six formers which was great it was really great to see that um things have changed now and they, they take safeguarding and, you know, just 
allowing people to be who they are and making sure there are anti-bullying policies and so on really seriously in, the, in, in my old school now. So that's, that's good. And I think that's, that's that, uh, quite a lot of schools do that now. I think things have changed a lot. Yeah, because um, I think um, the point um, that, that you make by um, that personal example, you know, from being as young as, as five, um, how, how you felt about yourself or overwhelming fragility and fear, uh, in terms of this idea of a, of a straitjacket going on, that can start very soon. And if you've got a school or a school policy that is failing diversity and inclusion, that must that must feel like a very fearful place and a real sense of paralysis in terms of who you are. I think my generation was had it particularly uh, hard in the sense that Section 28 was the law that Mrs. Thatcher brought in in 1988. So that came in, which meant that it was meant to, was meant to prohibit schools from teaching um, the gay relationships were normal or like traditional family relationships but essentially what it did was just demonize gay people and the media was doing that you know it was the, the heyday of the sun in particular and the the right-wing press and you know labor was just at that point beginning to support gay rights so the, the right-wing media and the government at the time weaponized that so basically tried to portray labor as being this party that wanted to basically turn your kids gay and they would all get aids and they would all die and that was kind of the message because obviously hiv and aids was happening which is a massive terrible thing that that occurred when i was you know 11 12 13 14 which made it even worse so i think those things all came together and it was a particularly difficult time so you you know there were no get out gay emps um, there were no, you know, you didn't have your Alan Carls, your Graham Nortons, all these kind of like people that were not out. It was very, you know, just people just didn't really come out really. And if they did, they were treated like lunatics. Um, and obviously it was illegal, you know, it was, it was, you know, legal to have gay sex over the age of 21 from 1967. Um, yeah. Uh, but you know, still the age of consent was 21 for gay people then. And it was 16 for everyone, everybody else. And there are all these kind of, you know, you could still be legally fired from your job for being gay. So just, it just, I, I mean, I always think of like the word frozen. I was just like frozen. I just didn't, I didn't have any concept of who I was, no role models, no books. I remember searching through the school library for, just to find any reference to gayness. The only one I could find was um, looking up the word homosexuality in the dictionary. And I remember it said, whatever it said, and then it said perversion. So it just was completely... You just didn't have any sense of, can I have a future? What's the future going to be? You never, never dreamt that you'd ever be able to get married. I mean, you know, when I, after I left university, I began supporting Stonewall and became very political because you'd had all these years of being repressed. But even then, I, you know, even when I was working at Stonewall on, on answering calls and, you know, stuffing envelopes and things like that and doing admin, I don't think we really ever dreamt that you'd have same sex marriage in our lifetime, really. So it's amazing how, how much has changed. Yeah, it, it is really significant, isn't it? I mean, that that w w would seem so incredibly radical as to what you thought you would ever see. Um, and in terms of this episode being part of LGBT History Month, it's really significant um, when you referenced Section 28. And, and for listeners, um, uh, 
particularly um, international listeners who may not be familiar with that story of Section 28 in the UK. That was Maggie Thatcher's uh, Tory Britain when she was Prime Minister. It was 1988 legislation that made it illegal for any local authority to promote homosexuality, which the phrasing alone um, I find baffling. Um, But there was um, a really alarming conference statement that Maggie Thatcher made, uh, which was children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught they have an inalienable right to be gay. All of those children are being cheated of a sound start in life. I mean, this is a pretty frightening political context, isn't it, that that you were living as a young person yourself? Yeah, in fact, she made that speech on the eve of my t- my uh, 15th birthday, uh, I think. Um, wow. I think so where was- do you go with that? What on, what on earth do you think as a 15-year-old? I mean, you have effectively been criminalised. <coughs> Excuse me. Choking with the emotion of it all, and it's not that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think it just kind of sent me mad, really. If if, if I'm honest, I mean, <clears throat> we were just talking earlier on that I'm I'm not not feeling very well today, and that's in part I'm still dealing with health problems which come from that time, from just being in the deep, deep trauma of existing in that way. I mean, I, I think actually, to be honest, it's it's difficult just being different. But growing up in that time, it just was just you're just not able to be what you're meant to be when you're a teenager, which is meant to be just you know finding out who you are, just being free. I've got a breathing disorder. I've spent you know middle age now. I've spent my life trying to find out what's wrong with me, like physically, because I've got you know some mental health problems and physical problems, and the two have always been treated separately. But they are you know they're very much intertwined. And I've got a breathing disorder. hyperventilation disorder where I like breathe, like pant like a like a basset hound basically and I was going to the doctor even when I was 14 or 15 about it saying I can't breathe properly and they thought maybe I had asthma and and I think it's it just was anxiety because you, when you're stuck in this fight or flight state where you cannot relax cannot be yourself it just it just dysregulates your entire system. You know, you just you, you just feel you can't relax. You you're like you know, you're at school. You're thinking, "Am I going to be found out? What will happen? Will I be fought, kicked out of school? Will I be beaten up?" Also, then you go home and you think, "Am I going to be found out at home?" The relationship, which is this key relation, obviously, you know, the biggest relationship you have when you're a kid with your parents. Is that really real? Will they really love me if they find out that I'm gay? Will they kick me out of home? And there was always stories you'd hear that people were kicked out of home. Um, I remember the son, um, the agony aunt, dear Deidre, who's now the agony aunt for this morning, did a big special on uh, kids coming out to their parents. And I remember the narrative of something being about like it's a devastating blow to the parents, Some, something like that's me paraphrasing, but basically it was framed as this is a terrible problem for parents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was not, uh, you know, uh, uh, what about the kid? And for a long time, you know, coming out, the narrative was always, um, you know, how did your parents take you? You know, what did you do? You know, this thing you did to your parents. How, how have your parents been? And it's never really been, oh, actually, how, how is it for you? You know, how is it for a kid having to 
hold that in because uh, you know there are some kind of fringe activists who claim that you know being gay is, is is a choice i don't believe that at all it certainly wasn't for me you know and i wouldn't have chosen it because it's it's been i would have chosen to have an anxiety disorder and have all that i've just been talking about so um it's difficult and, that, and actually that 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 agony problem page I remember there was a story where um a mother had written in saying i think the headline was and i read this the headline was i loved him but now i wish he was dead and it was a story about, uh, it was a mother writing in saying, my son uh, was in the Navy, I think, certainly in the Army, only in the armed forces, and had been to fight in the Falklands War and had been, come back considering to be a hero. And then he'd come out as gay, and she said she'd she wish he died in, oh, in the Falklands say it. War. Yeah, oh, so, wow. so, I mean, it's really wow. painful when I... Oh, when it's I, too brutal for words, yeah, it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's horrendous. And, and when, I, when I remember that, it's just like... It's no wonder I'm still not well. You know what I mean? Having to, having to deal with that. That's right, because legacy is pretty much a permanent impact, other than as you're highlighting, depending on you know how we maybe self empower ourselves, um, you know, to to cope with that. But in terms of your health impact, um, I mean, it certainly sounds like you're um, describing pan attacks, acute anxiety, and stress that manifests in a breathing disorder um, with triggers um that can be around you pretty much non-stop and it reminds me actually of um Brené Brown who you refer to in in your book uh, the brilliant Brené Brown again for listeners who may not be familiar is a research professor at the University of Houston and you can actually find her TED Talks still on YouTube. They went viral. Um, they are absolutely brilliant talks because she researches shame, courage, and vulnerability. And it's really open and positive thinking about how we can change the traps that we sometimes impose upon ourselves in terms of mental health crisis or negative thinking, for example. But in terms of shame, she defines three essential ingredients, secrecy, silence, and judgment. They are the essential three ingredients for shame. How do you respond to that, Matthew? Well, yeah, I mean, shame is a really big part of it. There's a famous study that I mentioned in the book um, from the Kaiser Permanente uh, Health Care Center in Oakland, California, where they basically looked into um, the effect of um, childhood trauma on on kids and whether that had an, an impact uh, into later life. Um, and they called these things ACEs, so adverse childhood experiences. So they, they basically wanted to see if did the number of adverse child experiences, childhood experiences, imp- impact on whether you're more likely to have, you know, problems with depression, anxiety, addiction, suicide, ideation, all these different things, mental health problems as adults. And some they took into account all these different things as, as ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. So, you know, being sexually abused, being physically abused, um, even having divorced parents, uh, having, you know, death of a parent or, being in a car crash or, or, you know, a whole range of, of different things. And of course, as it sounds, again, it sounds obvious now, of course, the, the higher the number of ACEs that someone had been through when they were a kid, the, the greater chances they would, they would have 
of having this whole variety of problems. And the biggest one, the most impactful one, uh, was what they called chronic recurrent humiliation, so being told you're bad, you're wrong. And I think that's what, as I say in the book, that's what LGBTQ people go through. Uh, you know, you, there's another therapist called Dr. Joe Court who describes um, gay kids as being um, victims of covert cultural I think covert cultural abuse. So when you're just being told, and of course it is slightly less now in the West, in most Western countries, but it's still there to some degree. But when you're told, you know, by religion, you're not acceptable. You're just not okay. You're not okay. You know, that constant message, you just come to start to believe it. And when you believe it and you have this kind of toxic shame when you, where you're just in, you're inside of you, you're, you're not thinking, oh, I'm just someone who occasionally, you know, like everybody, I can make mistakes, I can do good things, I can do bad things. You start to think there's something wrong with me. I'm fundamentally flawed, I'm fundamentally bad, fundamentally bad. Even if it's not a conscious thought, so, you know, subconsciously you just start to come to believe it because that, those are the messages that you're being told from society all the time. And so, yeah, that, that, those, are the, those are those impacts. And that, that big thing, is, you know, she talks about, you know, secrecy. That's a that's a key part to it as well. I mean, like I say, I haven't I haven't thought massively about the book for for a while now. But there's there's a chapter in the book. I think it's called it's called False Selves and Survival Skills. And I think, funnily enough, I was just listening, listening to Boy George's autobiography, new new autobiography, and he met talks about that. And I think I know he's read straight. Jackie mentions the phrase false selves. You know, this idea that when you're a kid, you have to create this other identity as a way to survive. And I think that's why there's so much of those kind of big personalities in the gay community, you know, where people become comedians or people become drag queens or people become very funny or very bitchy. And and I did, did that as well. You know, when I was at school, I became this kind of like hypermaniac, hysterical lunatic that was always being funny or always, you know, ready with a kind of cutting barb as a way to survive, you know? So if people were kind of, these boys were kind of physically threatening to me, I'd be, bitchy or witty or funny or make them laugh as a way of getting out of it but and and that you know i'm not i'm not saying it's all bad or whatever but i think that did start to <laughs> that all contributed to making me a little bit crazy because i just did not know who i was i just you know when you're constantly at this kind of hello 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 hello, 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 hello you're acting from coming from that that level the whole time and i did that for years you know when, even when i was working at attitude all through my 20s until i had this crash and i started to realize oh my god what is underneath all of this who am i how can i be an authentic human being because i'm operating from this kind of place that isn't really real really yeah, that's it's so interesting what you're saying and uh, um, that idea of, you know, creating big or huge personalities, kind of partly preempting identity attacks. So you're kind of being bigger than the attack. Uh, you're ahead of the game. But as you were saying, that's incredibly hard to maintain. But it's also that struggle of um, surviving negative language, which, you know, may have changed somewhat um, today compared to, say, when you were a teenager. But nevertheless, the problems do remain, uh, perhaps in, in different ways. I'm wondering, actually, if you have seen the film All of Us Strangers. Mm, yeah, I have, yeah. Oh, my word. Um, I can't recommend it enough personally. Um, I saw it recently. Um, so to let listeners know, all of us strangers, um, it's an incredibly 
emotionally powerful story. Uh, the actor Andrew Scott um, is somebody who is a gay man suffering uh, with such deep emotional agony. Um, he is finding it difficult to make connection and have relationships. And his co-star, Paul Mescal, equally astounding, just plays absolutely crucifying agony. And this is set in the 80s. So it's that context of a very more overt, if you like, homophobia at that time. But what I wanted to highlight, Matthew, was Claire Foy, the actress that plays Andrew Scott's mum. The language, I mean, I don't know about you, but um, of course she plays brilliantly that innocence whilst simultaneously saying the most incredibly hurtful things. I mean, I was like literally cringing in my seat. Um, References like your special friend as opposed to your boyfriend or your partner. And I think probably the worst line, something along the lines of, well, obviously no mother wants to have a gay child. And Andrew, the the actor, um, uh, he he just responds so brilliantly, doesn't he? In like the slightest flicker in his face that acknowledges that that is a really, really painful thing to hear, but is nevertheless hanging on to that connection with his mother. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the really, that's the saddest part of all of this, in a way that I think, you know especially that time in the 80s, just really undermined people's relationships. You know, pe- parents have been robbed as well. You know, parents have been robbed of their relationships with their children because they have this st- stupid cu- culture, you know, be it Mrs. Thatcher or the Tory government, but the media in particular, and the son is the one I always think of, uh, in particular with the editor at the time, Kelvin McKenzie, who was just sa- savage against gays, you know, just an editorial in the sun. I mean, it's just weekly, you know, re- day in, day out kind of attacks on gays and lesbians as, you know, we didn't really talk about bisexual or transgender people then, so just gays and lesbians that were constantly attacking. But remember one editorial they wrote referring to gay people as gay, gay, gay terrorists, you know, so this constant kind of messaging. So, like, it's quite hard to go against the grain if you, if you, on, on one level for, for people, for people to be able to, I mean, I still think this is the case. I mean, I loathe the media and I talk about talk about it all the time is climate change is a thing I focus on a lot. And I think they've completely failed us in that respect in making people aware of how serious climate change is. Um, but I, th- I think it's very hard when you're being told as a regular person by the media constantly, think this, think this, think this. It's very difficult to kind of have your own mind and think outside of the box. So yeah, I, I, I I've got, I mean, it's just, I mean, any gay person of my age and younger will just knowing having those flawed relationships and I have a great relationship with my parents now and and you know most of my friends do but most of us have gone through some real difficulties and hearing our parents saying really difficult things and you know someone who told me that they their parent um threatened to poison them when they were like 11 or 12 if if you turn out to be gay you know, I just so it's, can't. It's, I just can't absorb it. It's yeah, just incredible. It's, it's incredible, it, and, and I think it's been very moving. Actually, this terrible case of um, Brianna Jai, oh, who, yeah. who 
yeah. was murdered recently. And I think hearing her parents talk about her so lovingly and then not even come into it that, oh, it was terrible having a trans child. You know, that's not an issue. They've just been so completely loving and supportive. And I think that's probably a place that a you know, huge amount of parents are in now. But actually hearing that out, out loud, I mean, I burst into tears when I heard her talking about her daughter because even though it's years and years later that the scars are still there there's still a part of me that is not intellectually but kind of emotionally surprised when I hear people you know saying they care about their gay kids there's still a part of me that keys into that remembering what it felt like when I was 12 thinking that well no I mean that's not possible you'll have to hide from them forever because they're never going to support you because that's what that's what society was kind of telling you. You know, society was telling you you were worse. You were the worst. You know, you were like you that you probably would catch AIDS. And I'm not stigmatizing people with HIV or AIDS, of course, because loads of my friends are HIV positive. But it was like you're going to catch AIDS. You're going to spread AIDS. You're going to be a pedophile. You're going to end up in prison. You're an enemy. You're a threat to children. You're a threat to everybody. You're a threat to society. That's what you were told constantly. And so. Um, yeah, it's still so when you yeah when you come out of that it's it's a big it's a big deal. Yeah, big and deal. and and so much of this is hinged on language and trauma. Uh, whether it's you know direct attacks in the playground, whether it's whether it's the media, whether it's unintentional trauma in your family, but nevertheless, you know, as the film um, All of Us Strangers depicts so well, um, the, the, the trauma of language is lasting. And it's very scary that in addition, in terms of the impact of social media, uh, the language that's used in social media and also visual language, and particularly when it's used for harmful purposes, you know, so much of that lay behind this absolutely shocking tragedy um, regarding the murder of Brianna Gee and, you know, a murder by two other teenagers. Um this is so extreme, isn't it, Matthew? Because this is another step beyond language, beyond social media. This is also the dark web. Uh, these teenagers uh, were absorbed in the dark web and in torture sites. Yeah, I mean, the world's a very kind of bleak place in lots of respects, isn't it? You know, I, I sympathise with my friends who are, parents now that you know do you give your child a you know teenager a phone or whatever because there's just absolute carnage and horror out there on the internet and um i i have a lot of sympathy for i i mean i don't know god knows what that is doing to young people today you know having access to everything that's on the internet and i i think a lot of nice people don't realize what is on the internet um so yeah it's it's a very yeah it's a but even you know like in terms of what happened to brianna you know like the, you know the judge said that this was the murder was motivated in part by transphobia that's what the judge found and you know the the way trans people are talked about in our society is horrendous you know i i've got friends i've got well-meaning friends i do understand that some people have you know issues and questions and are wrestling with I don't know, the politics of transness or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and I think there are some people who do have, you know, who, who are, do have questions they're trying to understand, but the way the discussion is being held is just so dehumanizing and horrendous and kind of, 
you know, pr- pretty violent. You know, this is very, I mean, it's very triggering. It's very similar to, to the way it was, you know, like, cause you, you know, you think that the, the biggest problem we have in the, in the country is, is transgender people. If you read the, <laughs> if you read the media, I mean, it's just incredible. It's incredible. So that will be having an impact on young trans people for sure. The good thing, I mean, the other side to that, the good thing is that actually the, one of the places I actually see the most positive, you know, human representation of trans people at the moment is on TikTok, actually, because people are able to reach out and show who they are and, you know, talk to each other and find each other on, on apps like TikTok. So like, the modern world has its, you know, negative points and its positive points, I suppose. Mm. And it's it's interesting because at the same time, um, you know, you do have to be very brave. There's a lot of courage involved, isn't there, to stand by your identity, um, you know, your own authenticity. And, and that's something else that Brene Brown talks about, having the courage to stand alone, for example, or the call to courage where she says, stop walking through the world looking for confirmation that you don't belong. You will always find it because you've made that your mission. How does that resonate with you, Matthew? Well, yeah, that does resonate a bit in the sense of what I said um, earlier on, that uh, you do have to take responsibility to some degree as well, because, yeah, you can constantly live in, all these terrible things have happened to me, and I... I think there's a line in the straitjacket, which is from the recovery kind of rooms where I say something like, um, in terms of getting better and recovering and, and, you know, finding a way through all this is that only you can do this, but you can't do it alone in the sense of, you know, you need to ask for help. I mean, I've got a friend at the moment who's really struggling, um, with various issues, which I won't go into, but, uh, and he's not read my book, funnily enough. He's, you know, someone I've known for a, a, a long time, and he's still resistant to this idea that he needs to ask for help. So friends are saying, "Look, we can help you. We can help you. We can help you." And he said, "No, no, no. I'm doing it my way. I'm doing it my way." I, I, and I think you have to, at some point, reach out, ask for help, take other people's advice, whether that's going to recovery or going to see a therapist or just, you know, just telling somebody. And that speaks to what Brené Brown says as well, that it's like, you know, shame only can kind of fester when it's kind of in the darkness. So, you know, when when you do start, when you stop keeping secrets and you start talking to people and telling your truth to people, it it changes everything, which is why I, you know, I'm talk about, um, you know, 12 step groups, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and, Sex Addicts Anonymous and so on in Straightjacket because I think there's a real power. They're not for everybody. They're not the be one end all, but there's a real power from going to a group like that and talking to other people who've had that exact same experience. So if you go to your doctor or a therapist, they could be absolutely fantastic and be the perfect route for lots of people. And I would recommend people speaking to therapists and GPs and so on. But they haven't, they haven't always had that experience. So they don't always know exactly how it feels. Whereas 12-step groups, you, you will literally hear people who've had almost the exact same experience as you've had. 
Mm. Uh, it would be very welcome as well to get out of us and them narratives. Um, I find it disturbing how divisive conversations and and debates are becoming around sexual politics. Um, that uh, it can't really be about any one group um, asserting more power over another group. There is so much mutual respect involved, but. There's so much education that's needed to be involved as well. And, and as you were saying, some of that education perhaps is also going through your own therapy or your, your own self-awareness and understanding. And depending on how much you might want to um, talk about this, in the book, you did say um, you undertook a trauma reduction program at one point. I think it was a short program. I was interested in how helpful that was for you. Was that a turning point? Was that after a rock bottom moment? Yeah, I've done everything now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've thrown it all at the wall. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I did a thing called the Trauma Reduction uh, Programme at the Priory, which is an outpatient thing for a week where it's a very intense course of therapy and going through things that happened to me growing up and trying to undo some of that trauma. And I thought, I found that great, you know, it was really powerful and you had this big emotional release if it works well. I was sobbing and again, panting like a basset hound, which is a common, <laughs> a common thing in my life and letting it all out. And that was really great. And it was really transformative. It didn't last for me. I was still drinking then. I think, um, drinking is a, is a thing that, uh, isn't massively well understood generally by the therapeutic community. Like I would say, if anyone's got any serious, you know, problems of low self-esteem or, you know, anxiety or depression, if you if you are serious about changing that, stop drinking. You don't necessarily have to stop drinking forever, but just stop drinking until you've got a handle on it because alcohol really seriously affects you. I mean, the amount of times I'd gone to my GP and said, "Oh, I feel bad and depressed," and that, no one ever said to me stop drinking or, or, or even took seriously you know how, how uh, you know the the level at which I was drinking and I don't drink anymore I haven't drunk for be 10 years in May so that's yeah it's been a been a long a long time now and life is much better for me uh without drinking but I've done loads of things I did a thing um called the lightning process which was a valuable thing to do um, I did a thing called the Hoffman process, uh, which they do around the country, which is a thing from California in the seventies, which was great. It was amazing. Again, none of the, all these things were really helpful. None of them were a permanent, a permanent solution, but at the moment I'm focusing on, like I say, health issues, like, like, is there a f more of a physiological basis to, to, as a result of anxiety and trauma and I'm just kind of investigating those routes which seem quite promising and I, I think that's a problem generally with um the way we deal with all of these things you know that just everything is treated as as separate you know mental health and physical health treated as separate things and I think they're absolutely symbiotic entwined with each other your you know your your mental health can affect your physical health and your physical health can affect your mental health so I, for me I think that's the way we should be going at the moment yeah and um would you say really key to personal resilience you know being able to um if you like cultivate your mental fitness as much as you may think about cultivating your physical fitness in fact Brianna's mother was on breakfast news this morning advocating for effective mindfulness uh, programs to be introduced into schools. Um, 
advocating for mental fitness, fitness that takes us away from hate and anger and negative automatic thinking, but to start taking ownership of how we think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think I think it's very easy to not realize how in the grip of tabloid mentality we are in. So when I was younger, you know, you'd hear on the radio, for instance, discussions about, you know, should, should uh, people get parenting lessons? And kind of, I remember listening to a certain quite well-known disc jockey ranting and raving, people, not like back in the day, we were much tougher, people don't need lessons to be parents. Well, Clearly, I think a lot of people do need lessons on how to be parents because there's a lot of problems out there, aren't there? There's a lot of neglect. There's a, you know, there's a month doesn't go past where we don't hear terrible things that happen to children because parents are not equipped or have alcohol problems or drug problems. I, I think I, I often wonder what our, what our school's for, what our society's for, if we can't equip people better with how to deal with you know, life challenges and mental health challenges and just basic things, paying bills and mortgages and things like that. And yeah, mindfulness and learning how to, you know, deal with things if you don't feel very good about yourself or if you're quick to anger or if you, you know, like boys at school that get themselves into trouble with fighting, that we could have a better understanding of what's that about? Why does that happen? What's the background of these kids? How could we intervene earlier? I think all of those things are uh, really, really important. And I suppose as well, I know that this kind of got a political edge to it, this, this, this podcast, but that comes into it too. Like there's this, as national, you know, an awareness now, isn't there, of mental health and the importance of talking. I saw some advert that came up on the TV the other day with two celebrities saying, Oh, let's have a cup of tea and a hobnob and just talk. How'd you feel? That's great. <laughs> talking is important. It is really important. But also there's a political aspect to it that, you know, like often people want to see a decent therapist. You have to wait ages sometimes. Sometimes, you know, GPs can get you on really quickly, but sometimes there's a very long wait. There's a long wait to have, you know, assessments for ADHD or autism or all of those kind of things. And often, you know, I hate to say it, that, you know, when I was, uh, you know, editing Attitude and had a half-decent salary, and not anymore, <laughs> I, I, I was able to, to pay to see, you know, a better therapist than the ones I was given on on the the NHS and pay to see a psychiatrist that can be like 400 quid an hour, you know, and it's really frustrating that, you know, sometimes you really do need someone who's really good at what they do and really knows what they're doing. Not that that's always the case because actually sometimes, you know, some of the cheaper therapists I've, I've had, and I've seen so many now um, have been really fantastic too, but there is a political dimension to this as well. It's all very well to say, just talk, but what happens if you can't see a therapist? Cause you know, the NHS has, you know, been knocked to its feet. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about such deep inequalities um, uh, for every for everybody. Um, you know, the, the mental health crisis is a soaring crisis, isn't it, across all demographics um, in the UK. Uh, waiting lists are virtually um, disastrous. Um, there was news reports only this week uh, with um, local community centres, if they're lucky enough to still be open, trying to actually supplement um, mental health support uh, because um, the formal routes still aren't available, for example. And all of these inequalities, of course, are compounding um, existing um, problems. And it's still within a global context of inequalities and therefore very 
difficult messaging. So whilst, as you were saying earlier, there's been great, you know, progress, for example, you never thought uh, you could get married when you're a teenager, you know, as a gay man, for example. But we are in a significant year, perhaps, uh, in terms of the hope of positive change. So uh, a general election year, of course, in your book, um, you at the time, you, you know, you, you were referring to um, 1997 when we were celebrating Tony Blair's Labour defeat of, as you put it, the homophobic Tories. And here we are in 2024. Um, it's been over a decade of very, very difficult Tory policies. We've seen um, poverty escalate. Around 50% of the children in the UK are formerly uh, living in poverty, for example. Um, we've seen arts cuts. We've been through austerity. There's constraints. There's new constraints on the right to protest, for example. Um, the United Nations have failed the uh, Tory government twice now in terms of uh, human rights failure. So if we were looking at 1997, um, which you reference in your book, to 2024, what are your hopes in terms of attitudes and progress that we might be able to see with a general election year and hopefully a new government? Um, <clears throat> well, that's a big question, isn't it? Because to be honest, like I said earlier on, I, I focus mainly now on climate change and that's in part because, you know, if people ever ask me, you know, what's the biggest problem facing LGBT people? I think, you know, trans people will always acknowledge this you know, huge barrage of hatred that trans people are receiving. But in a wider way, the biggest threat to all of us is is what's happening to the planet because, you know, there's no gay rights on a broken planet. So that is my main concern because we are heading towards... <laughs> as David Attenborough puts it, the collapse of human civilization, which no one seems to really, seems to go in, it doesn't seem to go in. People don't seem to understand it. This is really happening. You know, the planet's spiraling into a calamity of which it will be the end of all, you know, the, the things we've pushed for, so, social justice, you know, feminism, you know, to stop racism and you know, equality for LGBT people. All of these things will mean nothing and will grind to a screeching halt. And it'll essentially be the end of the world as we know it if we don't stop what's happening to the planet. So that is the thing that I focus on. And I, th and I, and I think probably since I, you know, I worked, you know, at Stonewall and then at Attitude and 20, you know, more than 20 years working in that sector. And I feel a little bit disconnected from it now, I suppose, because I do think, you know, I'm older now, I'm middle-aged, you know, I'm 50 now. And um, I guess I see things in a more macro sense. I feel like, you know, you said earlier on about you not you know, separating people. I feel that really strongly. You know, being gay is there's certainly, you know, it's an important part of my life and it's what I've written books about and what I talk about and I will always talk about it and stuff. But it's just a part of me. And all of these issues are intertwined, aren't they? You know, like I said, you know, me being a gay man, some of the problems I had were with the fact that I didn't get very good help from the NHS. The therapists I saw through the NHS didn't really understand. So that that's an aspect there. So that's not just my gayness. Do, do you see what I mean? So 
everything is political. So sorting out the NHS is really, really important. That will really help gay people, even though it's not something that's seen as something as a gay-specific issue. That would really help gay people. The same with the planet. You know, like when they see sewage being poured into rivers, that affects gay people as much as it affects anybody. It just affects us, doesn't it? It affects all of us as a society. So I think I'm focused on those issues. And that's where I'm kind of, I, I think as the planet collapses and that, you know, we will go more to the right, you know, cause there's economic kind of problems that come with that. Um, that's when, you know, minorities of all types get scapegoated more. So things will be very, very difficult for LGBT people. So that's where I kind of focus my, you know, my attentions in terms of helping everybody and myself, you know, selfish as well. I'm scared of what's happening to the planet for my own self, my own sake and my friends and family, but also for the LGBT community. So to me, I feel like that's, that, that's where I feel like we need to be. It's the same with American Trump, isn't it? It's like, you know, Trump is certainly not a specific issue just to gay people, but it is, yeah, he's a threat to all of us. And, and like sometimes it is much, I'm not saying that specific LGBT issues aren't, aren't important because they are, like I say, especially for trans people, the demonization of trans people is shocking and I t totally would stand with trans people and march with them and all the rest of it. But also there's these other emergencies that are happening as well. So uh, I feel like we, uh, you know, people say, sometimes people push back on that and say, oh, we got, you know, we've got this on our plate. And I do understand that some people do. Of course, I'm not saying trans people, it's your responsibility. But what I am saying is, we must all understand that, unfortunately, this is the hand that the world has dealt us at the moment. There's a lot of huge problems, aren't there? There's, you know, the problem with Russia and the threat of war and everything that's happening, you know, in the Middle East and just all these really awful problems. It's a really horrible time at the moment, isn't it? And so it can be completely overwhelming. And I, I think that's, for me, I don't know, there's been a, this focus, and I've been part of it, on identity stuff, whereas I feel like at the moment I feel like we need to be, need to be more about unifying and come, coming together. And, and actually that's been a big theme in my work as well, but I'm just so, so like irritated by having to focus on gay stuff in my life in, in the past because it's just such a minor thing. Who cares if you're gay? Like, like, when, like when David Cameron, David, both David Cameron and Tony Blair have said at times when they've been asked what their greatest achievement is, and Tony Blair said, oh, gay rights was, is, is up there because, you know, he was really pivotal in bringing, you know, in a lot of, you know, getting rid of unequal laws and stuff. And I'm really grateful to him that he did that. And David Cameron has said, oh, one of the big, most things I'm most proud of is same-sex marriage. And I get that. But also, I don't think it should be. It should have just, to me, it's, it's just like when gay marriage came in, it had to be this huge drama where it was discussed in the media, the endless radio phone-ins and, you know, rallying Tory MPs who were all against it. And actually a majority of Tory MPs did vote against same-sex marriage, even though David Cameron was responsible for pushing it through. My point just being is that it's such a minor thing. It should have just been right. Okay. We'll take two weeks. We'll fill in a form. I'll change the law, move on. Cause there's just so many more life and death important issues. It should just be equality, you know, gender equality, race equality, you know, trans equality, gay equality, these should be simple things to fix. They shouldn't be the huge dramas that they are and shouldn't take up so much of our time and energy. But unfortunately, the world isn't like that, is it? No, no. Sorry, I'm ranting. You've got me ranting now. No, that's good. I like a rant. That's really good. So unfortunately, it brings me to my last question because we've raced through our hour. Um, and so... Um, You've obviously been involved in the creative industries. You, 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 you've um, written plays. 
um, you've, you've, you've used and embraced the arts for your own um, expression. And so I'm interested in the question, can art save us? How is it that the arts can maybe help us cope with all of those dramas and traumas and overwhelming world events that we've just been touching upon? Uh, well, it's funny because a friend of mine who's trans said to me a while back, maybe a year ago, <clears throat> said, how, how was it that you achieved gay equality? And she's a bit younger than me, so she was you know, asking how in the, the 90s and ongoing how, how things changed. And I think a really big part of that was films and especially TV. I think soap opera characters uh, were, were, seem, might seem to be, you know, tr- a little bit trite, but actually have been really impactful. Just showing the lived experience of people having characters in your home, you know, twice or three times a week that you have a relationship with, as you do with soap, you know, characters. I think that's been really, really important. For me, <clears throat> going to see plays actually was really, really important. Plays and films. You know, when I um, I saw the, the film Beautiful Thing that came out in 1996, written by Jonathan Harvey, who's a writer on Coronation Street and written lots of other plays and well-known to gay audiences, he wrote this play that was on, I think, in the Bush Theatre in Shepherd's Bush in 1995. I think it transferred to the Dormar Warehouse and also to the West End, and that became a film in 1996. That was the first time I'd ever seen two gay teenagers. You know, I was 23 or something, and seeing these teenagers, 16, 17, 18, two two characters who were like me. It was the first time I'd ever seen, you know, two gay men, young men who were just like regular people. Um, so I think the answers is really, really important and really vital and it reflects who we are. That said, I've also been really frustrated that I think the arts has been so fixated on, you know, some of these kind of issues you know, identity issues, which are really, really important. And I will go and see them. And I've written a play about, you know, gay life myself called Blowing Whistles, which was quite successful and been on around the world and stuff. Um, but I also think so, I have frustration at the moment as my awareness of, you know, what's happening to the planet is that the arts have really failed to address the, the ecological collapse that we are well and truly in now. But there's hardly been any plays about it. Not many, many books, not very many TV shows or films. There's a couple actually that come this year. Jodie Comer's in one. Um, but yeah, I, I think the arts is great, but also it can be a little bit self-indulgent as well. I think I wish it would embrace these bigger issues uh, as well. Yeah, that, that's really, really interesting. Particularly because, as you were saying, you know you've you've been actively involved um, in the in the art space as, as a as a playwright. So it's it's really interesting how you can see that kind of playing both ways. Matthew, it's a very, very, very big thank you from me uh, for taking part um, in this podcast series to have such a valuable perspective. And for anyone who's listening who may be feeling vulnerable at the moment, perhaps, or struggling with identity or sexual identity, or for listeners who may just be curious about understanding gay culture, the gay community, or what or what some of those issues are, um, everything will be signposted on Matthew's episode page, uh, and I will be sure to signpost you to his website. 
Matthew, thank you so much. It's really important, uh, the book and the other works that you've created. And I really hope um, that can be embraced once again um, as part of LGBT History Month. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to chat to you. Oh, bless you. Thank you, Matthew.